Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today is July 27th, 2023, and I'm joined as usual in studio by IPI's resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews. And today, Dr. Matthews, we want to talk about a piece of legislation that unfortunately was voted out of committee today Mm -hmm. in the Senate, the Kids Online Safety Act, or COSA, K-O-S-A. Now, you may wonder why they're calling it the Kids Online Safety Act, because that sounds... normally starts with a K. Because that sounds so, yeah, that sounds so um, informal. But unfortunately, there was already a Child Online Safety Act that was ruled unconstitutional years mm-hmm. ago. So the, they decided to call this one the Kids Online Safety Act and hoping somehow that would make a difference. Now, you know, I'm, I'm joking here, of course, but like who's who could be against kids online safety, right? There's a whole subtopic here of the way legislation gets named, like the Inflation Reduction Act, right. which actually which, probably contributed to inflation. Right. <laughs> Did nothing to to actually address inflation right. and likely increased it by pouring so much money. Right, into exactly. So a lot of times, a lot of times the names of legislation are meant to sound attractive, where actually you look at the details and sometimes it's something entirely other. But in the case of the Kids Online Safety Act, this is indeed a piece of legislation that is targeted at protecting children online. Now, you and I have been at this a long time, and I'm going to reveal my cynical side now, but it does seem like when it comes to government and legislation, protecting children is like the last refuge of the big government scoundrel. And so many times we find that when people want to do something, they cloak it in protecting children. Mm -hmm. Because who could be opposed to protecting children, right? And it is an issue these days with people people having access to things that we would think children shouldn't have access to. There are absolutely some legitimate concerns, and we're going to get to that in a second. I just, I'm to the point after having spent a career doing public policy that anytime I hear a politician say we're trying to protect the kids or do something for the kids, that's almost a red flag with me. Mm-hmm. It at least, it at least pulls, makes me put on my skeptical glasses to make sure that that's what this is. Now, the context here, of course, is that politicians at both the state and federal level for several years have found that it is politically beneficial to bash big tech, mm-hmm. right? There are populist reasons for doing this. There are people who just don't like anything that's big and seems to have an undue influence in our lives. And that's not just the United States. It's in Europe, too. It's absolutely Europe. In fact, Europe sort of puts us to shame from a regulatory standpoint. When you go to a website right now and that annoying thing pops up where you have to say, I accept cookies or I don't accept cookies, mm-hmm. uh, the reason you see that is because of a European piece of legislation. It was passed several years ago, the GDPR. And because all websites are international, even if it's purely an American website, uh, to comply with the GDPR, they have to have that thing pop up. Uh, Most people don't even bother to read it. They just click on it to make it go away so they can get on with the business at hand. Uh, But that is an example of a European regulation. In the U.S., um, it's become very popular to bash big tech. And I think there's several threads 
you know how like in Ghostbusters, it's like, don't cross the streams, mm -hmm. right? There's several streams here that are crossing. The first stream is this sort of just general populist dislike of anything that's really big and has an undue influence in our lives. The second thing is the fact that we do spend so much time online now, we're extra sensitive to things that happen online, right? And a lot of advertising, of course, has moved from the print world, the magazine world, and the newspaper world to the online world. So if you're on Facebook or Twitter, or if you're just going to like a news website or anything like that, you are inundated with ads. And there's basically two kinds of ads. There's static ads, which is a, everybody sees the same ad. And then there are ads that are based on behavioral advertising. So they've been tracking you to some degree. They've been tracking your IP address or something, and they're trying to target ads at you. So for instance, if you've, if you've gone online and searched for where can I find a good source for flower pots, uh, you should not be surprised if the next time you log on to Facebook, all of a sudden it's serving up ads for flower pots. That's what's called behavioral advertising. Uh, advertisers see that as a good thing. I actually see that as a good thing. I'd rather see an ad that's targeted at something I'm interested in than just a bunch of, you know, random ads that I may or may mm -hmm. not be interested in. But behavioral ad advertising freaks a lot of people out because it's like, oh, they're they're tracking me. They're following my my moves online, and that that upsets a lot of people. The other thing that is the other stream that's contributing to this, and this is a legitimate stream. Uh, I've kind of talked about the previous two sort of as a, with a snarky attitude, but there's a legitimate concern here. There really does seem to be some significant harms that can come to minors online, to young people online. Uh, there are lots of adult topics that a 12-year-old can come across if they're simply online and doing web searches and things like that. In particular, there's been a big concern about social media because social media algorithms are designed to serve you up more of what you seem to be interested in. And so if you're a teenage girl and you are going online, and I'm, I'm sorry to be ugly about this, but this is the nature of the thing. If you're going online and you're researching things like, how do I stay thin? Mm -hmm. Or if you're searching on things like anorexia and bulimia, or whatever, then the social media algorithms will serve up more content to you about how to stay thin and anorexia and bulimia. If you're going online and you're saying, uh, where can I get lip injections done? Because every, every woman that I see on Instagram has had lip injections done. It's going to serve up information about how to get lip injections done. Um, if you're going online and looking into cutting, which is a Deplorable. Sad and deplorable thing that sometimes people with, with mental issues do, self-harming. You can find more. The algorithms will, solve, will serve up more information about self-harm. And it does seem, and I don't mean to be sort of sexist about this, but it does seem particularly with pre-adolescent and adolescent young women mm -hmm. that there are some real harms that are coming from social media. It also seems that there are some real harms that are coming to pre-adolescent and ad adolescent young men who are having some of their more violent fantasies reinforced by social media. So uh, some of the concerns I think about the online effect on children is sort of just a cynical attempt by people to do regulation. But some of the concerns are also legitimate. I think we have to grant that. There's lots of things in life 
there's lots of technologies in life that have both positive and negative consequences. And it takes time for society, for civilizations to sort of learn how to handle that. It, you know, we, we, now have, we now have seatbelt laws and we now have airbag requirements for automobiles. Uh, we have learned over time how to make automobiles more safe than they used to be. Used to be that a lot more people were killed in automobile accidents than they are today. It took society a while to sort of adapt to the technology of automobiles and figure out how do we use them as safely as possible. And you may remember that they they made some mistakes along the way. There was initially with the seatbelt laws, uh, some cars wouldn't start with the, if your seatbelt wasn't buckled. Right, exactly. And and they had came up and said, well, that was probably not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Let's scale that back some. Yeah, so now a lot of passenger seats literally have a weight sensor in it, mm-hmm. right? And if there's nothing in the passenger seat, it's not a problem. But if there is a weight in the passenger seat, you get some sort of a warning that says seatbelt. Don't forget to connect your seatbelt. We have anti-lock brakes now. So over time, the, the automobile technology has gotten safer as we've learned how to make it safer. And every technological innovation, I would argue, takes time for society to learn how to use it safely. And we're, we're probably not there yet with social media. We're probably not there yet with a lot of online internet content. But what we run into with the Kids Online Safety Act is really nothing new. We run into something that is really as old as government. And that is, is it the government's role to protect us from ourselves? Or do we believe in individual responsibility? Do we believe in parental responsibility, et cetera, et cetera? And in a free society, to which degree do we tilt the playing field? Do we tilt the playing field towards safety or do we tilt the playing field toward liberty? And when you have a bill like the Kids Online Safety Act, all of those sort of philosophical questions really come to the fore. Because what the Kids Online Safety Act does is two major things. First of all, it requires internet platforms to age verify their users. So the idea here is if you're going to be using a, a, a website, uh, YouTube, uh, Twitter, the new threads, Instagram, Facebook, you know, whatever, whatever new things might come along, uh, these platforms are going to be required to do age verification to make sure that 12-year-olds are not setting up accounts. Now, That may sound like a very reasonable, simple thing, but it's highly, highly problematic for this reason. You can't verify age without verifying identity. Now, if you've ever gone to the website of a wine seller or a distiller or a liquor store or anything like that, or a beer company, a window will pop up and it will say, are you over age 21? Are you age 21 or older? Mm -hmm. Yes, no, right? And you click yes, and you're in. Boom, right? So did they really verify your age? Or did they just ask you a question? Anybody could click it. There's nothing stopping a 14-year-old from saying, yes, I'm 21 or older. There's really no verification going on, okay? So there's a sense here in which you can either have useless make-believe age verification, or you could have real serious age verification, And the problem with real serious age verification is that it requires identity verification. Turns out, Dr. Matthews, that there's no way for me to verify your age online 
without verifying that you're actually Dr. Merrill Matthews. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how do I find out? Let's say you are trying to set up an account on Instagram. Okay. Now I have to make sure you're not a 12 year old, right? So what I really have to do is I have to do identity verification on everybody, right? Because how do I know you're not a 12 year old? And it's not simple enough for me to ask, are you 17 or older? Because mm -hmm. you could lie, right? So what do I have to do? To do really thorough age verification on you, I have to ask you for all kinds of personal information. And if you've ever tried to set up a bank account online, or if you've ever, try, ever tried to borrow money from like a business credit website online or something like that, you know how this works. Give us your driver's license number. Upload a picture of your driver's license number, of your driver's license, front and back. Mm -hmm. Upload a picture of your health insurance card. What is your social security number? What is your physical address? Why are they asking for that information? Because it turns out you can verify identity online. You can ask for your street address and then you can go out and you can hit property tax databases. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in the in the Dallas County or in the Denton County property tax records, is there a Merrill Matthews who owns property at this address, right? They can go out and they can hit social security databases. Uh, they can go out and hit voter registration databases. So they can verify that you are actually Dr. Merrill Matthews. But to do so, it requires you to submit all kinds of personally identifiable information. Now, the problem with that is that up to this point, privacy best standards have been that's the one thing we don't want them collecting. <laughs> okay. We, we're, we're kind of okay with them tracking our IP address. You know, and if you don't want them to track your IP address, you can get a VPN, you get a virtual private network or something like that. But the thing about an IP address is the IP address does not tell you my name, my social security number, my street address. It doesn't tell you that personal identifying information. Mm -hmm. It's information about me, but it's not personally identifiable. So what COSA does is actually turn this whole idea of online privacy on its ears. And what it actually says is, you are now going to have to submit this personally identifiable information, okay? So guess what now? Guess who, Guess what Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, guess what they all have now in their, in their database? They have all your personally identifiable information. Which is bizarre given and, the which fact— Which is not a problem since no one ever gets hacked, right? I was going to say, it's, 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 we hear regular stories of various companies getting hacked and thousands and thousands of people— uh, information being uh, compromised. Right. Exactly. And the kind of information that we're talking about here is exactly the kind of information that is used for identity theft. Okay. Now, they might not be asking you for a credit card information, for a credit card number, but they are asking you for the very information that an identity thief needs in order to impersonate you online. So the really bizarre thing about the Kids Online Safety Act is that the first thing it does is require the submission of an enormous amount of personal information by adults, mm -hmm. okay? And my guess is most adults don't want to do that. So if you game this out and you game out that the Kids Online Safety Act actually becomes law and were to somehow pass court scrutiny— there's going to come a day when you could log on to Facebook and it's going to say, okay, need your driver's license number, need your full legal name, mm -hmm. need your social security information, need your street address. And how are folks going to feel about that?
They're not going to like it, okay? So that's the really the first enormous problem with the Kids Online Safety Act. You can either play the game of verifying identity, which is just asking a question, or you can literally ident- do identity verification, which violates privacy to an enormous degree. The second problem with COSA is what's called duty of care. And what COSA does is COSA creates a duty of care for online platforms. Literally what the law says is that these online platforms are required now to protect children from the harms that are posed to them online. Now, let me ask you a question. Who do we normally hold responsible for protecting underage children from harm? Typically the parent. Typically the parent, okay? If your kid goes into Walmart and sees the condom display and says, what are condoms for, okay, is it somehow Walmart's liability that Walmart has exposed your, you know, six-year-old child to the existence of condoms? Is that Walmart's? Does Walmart have a duty of care to protect your kid from that? No, they don't. But what COSA does is it creates this burden. It creates this duty of care for online platforms to protect minors against perceived harmful things, okay? Now, the problem is, who's to decide what's harmful? Who's to decide what's harmful? Now, we talked earlier in this podcast about things that are obvious, right? Encouraging someone to cut themselves, encouraging someone to go on an extreme diet, encouraging someone to engage in anorexic or bulimic behavior. That's obviously pretty harmful, right? But what about exposure to just basic sexual information, right? Basic reproductive information. Is that harmful to an 11-year-old? Is it harmful to a 17-year-old? Is it harmful to a nine-year-old? I can tell you that I had a very precocious son who was into tech and was into online at a very early age, okay? Not everybody maybe is that precocious, but who's to decide what is harmful and what is not harmful to different children at different ages? But what COSA does is it literally makes these online platforms liable for any ha- any perceived harm that might happen to children. That's a whole new form of liability that's really never been anticipated before. And here's what's really weird. When you're talking about the internet, when you're talking about social media, when you're talking about online platforms, what you are talking about is speech, okay? When you, when you go on an online platform, what you are doing is either consuming the speech of others or you are engaging in speech yourself, right? When you go online on a website, you're not on a roller coaster at Six Flags. You're not walking the aisles of a supermarket where someone might have spilled vegetable oil and you might slip and break your hip or something like that. The internet is speech. That's what the whole internet is. It's speech. It's communication. So what COSA actually does is it creates this duty of care for these online platforms to protect people from the harmful effects of speech. And that means that COSA does not hold up to First Amendment scrutiny. 
because we have many, many, many Supreme Court precedents that essentially says that no one has a duty to protect someone from the harms of legally protected First Amendment speech. So COSA is just a hugely problematic bill. And what it does to a large degree is it simply takes a lot of the things that have been happening at the state level into federal legislation. Mm-hmm. And most of these bills at the state level are all at some one or another stage of constitutional uh, questionability, right? You've had Texas pass these kinds of laws. You've had Florida pass these kinds of laws. You've had Utah pass these kinds of laws. All of these laws have been rejected at one point or another in the process by lower courts as having violated the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. And essentially, these state laws are going to make their way to the Supreme Court. And we're going to see whether or not they survive Supreme Court First Amendment scrutiny. I don't think they will. Most people who pay attention to these things don't think they will. But now you have, at the federal level, the very same kind of legislation that is being pushed at the state level. Age verification, creating liability for exposure to speech, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So from a legal standpoint, from a First Amendment standpoint, from a traditional way of evaluating the First Amendment and legal liability, COSA just doesn't pass mustard. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't. And neither do the state bills. Now, that is not to say that children should not be protected from online harm. You know, we're not sitting here on this podcast saying, yeah, it's a great thing if your kids are exposed to pornography online or self-harm or all kinds of content they're not prepared for or peer pressure or undue peer pressure from Instagram or something like that. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is it's not the government's job to protect minors. It is parental responsibility. It is the parent's job. And almost all of these tools have parental controls that if if parents are willing to put forth the effort, these parental controls can be used to protect minors online. For instance, on the iPhone, The iPhone actually has very robust parental controls. So if you're to the point as a parent where you think it's time for your 14-year-old or 12-year-old or whatever to have a smartphone, you can can go to to Verizon or AT&T or T-Mobile or whoever your provider is, and you can say, I want to buy this phone for my kid, but I want to set up parental controls. And you can literally set up that phone the way you want it set up for your kid and you can lock that kid out from from installing any more apps. So if you don't want your 12-year-old daughter to have access to Instagram, Mm -hmm. you can hand her an iPhone on which she does not have access to Instagram, and she will never have access to Instagram unless she was a parent granted to her. So these tools are available. They're available on iPhones. They're available on Android phones. Almost all desktop and laptop computer operating systems have these kinds of parental controls. So they are there. They exist. YouTube has parental controls. You can tell YouTube to not allow certain kinds of videos to be shown on a computer without an override password that only the parent would know. So these parental controls are out there. So it is simply not true that parents do not have the tools to protect their children 
online. They do have the tools. They may not be aware of them. Maybe what's needed is a better public education campaign. Maybe what the companies need to do is a better job of sort of communicating the parental controls. Mm -hmm. But again, from our standpoint at the Institute for Policy Innovation, where we prioritize permissionless innovation, free speech, individual responsibility, parental responsibility, uh, we don't like the idea of the federal government passing legislation that not only violates the First Amendment or likely violates the First Amendment, but that also usurps the role of parents in protecting their children online. Okay, so that's our concerns here at the Institute for Policy Innovation about COSA, the Kids Online Safety Act, that today passed successfully out of the Senate Judiciary Committee, unfortunately. And what that means is that it will go over to the House and that will there may eventually be a floor vote. We hope not because we think this legislation is highly problematic. On the other hand, there are so many efforts going on right now at both the state and federal level to do this kind of thing that it seems inevitable that sometime in the next Supreme Court session or two that this is going to end up having to be settled by the Supreme Court as so many other things are. Uh, I just wish that legislators would take their duty to the Constitution as seriously as our current Supreme Court does. Well, we would invite you to check out our website at IPI.org and to sign up there if you'd like to receive notices of our new podcast episodes, new content, and upcoming events. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.